This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast with me, Tally Rye. This is the podcast that helps you have a feel-good relationship with fitness, food, and body image. And this week, we have a guest I have wanted to chat to since the very first episode of the Train Happy Podcast. We are talking to Christy Harrison. You might know Christy Harrison as host of the Food Psych Podcast, author of Anti-Diet, and now author of her new book, The Wellness Trap. And so today we are talking all things wellness, wellness culture, how diet culture is morphing into wellness culture, and all the subtleties you need to look out for. I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Christy is an extremely smart lady, and she really goes into so many levels of how wellness culture impacts our relationship with food, with ourselves and with our bodies. And so I really think you're going to enjoy this one. But before we get into that, it is time for Train Happy Trooper of the Week. This week's Train Happy Moment comes from Annabelle, which she sent in to us. She says, Hi Tally, my Train Happy Moment happened a few days ago when I was having an extremely difficult body image day. After journaling and working through what I was feeling, I identified that what would help me recenter was an explanation of how problematic the systems I measure myself in accordance with really are. I was feeling so upset and a little bit frantic, so I searched fat bias into the podcast search bar, hoping to find relief in anti-diet conversation, confirming all the conclusions I had come to in my journaling. And the Train Happy podcast episode with Virginia Soulsmith came up. When I tell you this was exactly what I needed to hear at the exact moment, I'm not lying. The peace I was brought by your conversation was so powerful and gave me the reality check I so desperately needed. This sprang me into action to reframe my disordered eating thoughts and gave me so much motivation to actively work against diet culture by taking care of myself. Thank you so much for your comforting and grounding words. They rescued me from a slippery spiral and I'm sure they've done the same for many others. Keep going. You're doing absolute bits from Annabelle. Annabelle... Firstly, thank you so much for your kind words about the podcast. And I'm so happy the Virginia Soulsmith episode spoke to you. I love chatting to Virginia. She is a real powerhouse and incredible kind of leader in this space. And I'm so glad you enjoyed that conversation. And you know what? I love that you had these strategies for when you're have when you're feeling a bit triggered. And I think for everyone listening, this is such a wonderful example of going oh I'm having a bad body image day 
the answer isn't necessarily to go and diet. The answer is to be curious about that. And Annabelle says she was curious. She journaled about it and she really tried to, you know, figure out what would kind of recenter her. And I love that word recenter. Um, and so finding resources that just remind you why you're choosing to not actively participate in diet culture is so important. It's why I wanted to make this podcast. It's why Christy Harrison, who's today's guest, has made her podcast, which is incredible, by the way. And it's why there are so many books and amazing people to follow online that those resources are so powerful and when you are feeling a bit wobbly to just help steady you on this journey so thank you Annabelle for sharing that train happy moment that was really really kind of you to share but also I think helpful for so many others so if you would like to share your train happy moment send us a voice note send us a text to our whatsapp 075999 If you're international, put a plus four four in front of that. We would love to hear from you. Okay, enough from me. It is time to get into this week's conversation all about wellness with Christy Harrison. Christy, thank you so much for coming on the show. You have been a dream guest of mine for a good while now. So I'm so excited that A, you've written a second book and B, that we get to talk about it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We have a lot to talk about. Um... I know you ha- you wrote your first book, Anti-Diet, which did it come out in 2020? 2019, end of 2019. So 2019, right it's flown before by. the pandemic. Yeah. Yes, it's flown by and it has been such a, so well received, it's such a great book, such a success, and you really dig into diet culture there. And so for round two, we're taking on wellness culture, which I think feels maybe a little bit of less of a familiar term to the train happy audience because we talk about diet culture a lot. But wellness culture is also a thing. And we're going to learn a lot about that today. So I suppose I would love to hear a bit about your own journey with wellness, um, how you were first introduced to wellness culture, and kind of how you've got to the point of writing a book about it. Yeah, so my journey has definitely been a winding one. Back in the early 2000s, I started having health problems and, you know, doctors couldn't really explain it. I was going around from doctor to doctor to try to get diagnosed. And um, unbeknownst to me, I was also struggling with seriously disordered eating, would have qualified it as an eating disorder if anyone had diagnosed it at the time, but nobody did. Um, And so I was, you know, missing my period. I was having fatigue and dry skin and brain fog and you know, muscle and joint pain, like all these different things that are sort of nebulous symptoms that are are very attractive, I think, to uh, or make people very susceptible to wellness culture. And so I, you know, it, it was the early 2000s. So it was before social media. It was before kind of the onslaught of mis and disinformation that we have these days in wellness culture. But it was still, it was still there. There was still plenty of misinformation to be found on the early internet in forums devoted to specific conditions. And so I lurked around a lot of those forums. I self-diagnosed with celiac disease, even though repeated tests show that I didn't have it. Um, I, you know, thought that I needed to be gluten-free anyway. I thought that I needed to cut out carbs. I thought I needed to only eat at certain times of day. It was interesting how, you know, even in the absence of all of those 
you know, I mean, Atkins was a big thing at the time. So that's where I got the low carb idea, but, uh, intermittent fasting was nowhere to be found, but I, I sort of created it for myself just in, as a disordered eating rule, you know? Um, and so I was doing all those things and I ended up having health problems as a result and no one could diagnose me. And so I think it drove me deeper and deeper into wellness spaces. Um, and I later learned I do have a number of autoimmune conditions um, and other chronic conditions, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, gastroesophageal reflux disease, many things that I, <laughs> I had to list out in the book and was like, oh, right. Oh, and that. Oh, and, and that too. Some of them were, you know, due to not eating enough. Like I was missing my period because of what I now know is hypothalamic amenorrhea. When you're not eating enough, you don't have enough energy coming in and you're over-exercising, you can lose your period. Um, but nobody knew that at the time. Nobody thought that, you know, they were like, oh, well, maybe it's your Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And even when that was corrected with medication, it still wasn't doing the trick. Um, oh, maybe it's this, or maybe it's that. No, it, it was, it was really when I started eating more food and exercising less, I got my period back. And so, you know, there were a lot of things like that, that just conventional medicine didn't really understand. And I did end up having a lot of conditions that also are poorly understood, even when they're diagnosed, they're sort of, it's like, okay, we'll just take this pill or, okay, you know, you're just going to have to manage this. Um, it's a, you know, chronic lifelong condition. We don't really have anything to tell you. And so I think that makes, that made me, and that makes many of us, I think, vulnerable to wellness interventions that say, oh, cut out all these foods and we'll, we'll be able to get you back to a state of optimal health. You know, you shouldn't have to feel this way. Your doctors, you know, aren't telling you that there are these cures for these things. They're giving you one size fits all solutions. They're not treating you as a whole, whole person. You know, we have this holistic solution over here. Come join us. And like, that's very appealing for people who are not getting what they need in the conventional system. So I think that's where my personal experience of all of this um, began. And that's what made me all these years later, you know, one of the things that made me want to dive into wellness culture, because I've been seeing just the, the way that it's grown and shape-shifted and sort of become this all-encompassing thing in the last 20 years um, in a way that I you know, only saw glimpses of back when I was first struggling. But, you know, over the years, even as I recovered and healed my relationship with food, I certainly was still, you know, susceptible in some ways to the to that messaging and to unproven, un, you know, non non-evidence-based sort of approaches to the conditions that I have. And then I was seeing, you know, one of the reasons I I wanted to delve further into wellness culture, because I talk about it a little bit in my first book, you know, about wellness being the new guise of diet culture in the second chapter. And we, I trace, you know, the development from Michael Pollan and Marion Nestle to clean eating and, you know, the sort of way that sustainability gets wrapped up with weight stigma and mm -hmm. ideas about, you know, the food environment creating larger body size and all of that stuff. And so I unpack that in the first book. But my I, I kept like coming back to that chapter. That was something that I kept talking to people about and that people seemed to be really interested in and resonating with. And I felt like I had to rein myself in from writing a whole book about it the first time <laughs> around. So, you know, it went on my list of potential book ideas for, for down the line. And then I started seeing in 2020, you know, with the pandemic, all of this like emergence of wellness culture in sort of weird new ways that, were like on the surface kind of unexpected, but then at the same time, 
really made a lot of sense given what I knew about wellness culture already. You know, the the way that it sort of was um, leading people down a path into anti-vax attitudes, anti-mask attitudes, and from there into QAnon and sort of like wild conspiracy theories. And, you know, it was like, what is happening here? I want to explore this. I want to like spend some time unpacking this. And also, you know, just knowing what I knew for, I mean, I had used to work at an environmental magazine. I was like, you know, my first job was in environmental journalism. I was very crunchy. And so I was like surrounded by people who really, um, eschewed the conventional healthcare system and were, were deep in it with like naturopaths and chiropractors and all this stuff. And so I was like, yeah, I can, I can kind of see why this connection is happening, you know, and why, um, why we're where we are. But I wanted to unpack and explore that more. And then I got my book deal on January 6th, or sorry, January 5th of 2021, uh, the wow. day before, you know, the infamous January 6th. And so I think that also, um, I was already thinking about the role of the internet and social media in fomenting wellness misinformation. And then with January 6th and all the attention being paid to, you know, the way that social media was polarizing and and dividing society and contributing to all this hate um, just made me all the more attuned to how that was showing up in wellness spaces. And also like how, you know, I think about, I, I think of well-being as the thing that we're kind of all striving towards and maybe an alternative to wellness. Although of course that term easily gets co-opted and, and is not like a pure quote unquote term either. Um, but you know, this idea of like mental, emotional, social well-being that's not just focused on the physical is kind of what we're striving for. And I started to see in thinking through the role of the internet and social media, how those things are undermining our well-being, you know, individually and collectively. So that became a, a focus in the book as well. We have so much to talk about today because I feel like you've give, given a really fantastic prelude to the rest of the episode of all the things I want to chat about. Um, because you're right, I think wellness culture is seemingly fairly innocuous. And actually, maybe I think to a lot of people, we've especially I know the Train Happy podcast listeners, I know we've become very aware and increasingly aware of diet culture and how it's a lot more obvious to spot in some ways. But wellness culture, which I know you started to get into in your first book, is a really nice, sneaky, subtle way to still kind of buy into diet culture's kind of core underpinnings, but repackage it as wellness you know it's not a diet it's a lifestyle and that this lifestyle is all about just looking towards your wellness but we know that that wellness is often steeped in really a ton of anti-fat bias and that well well people are thin people um and they're a certain way and so can you talk to us about the how yeah how wellness culture is kind of diet culture in a new outfit. Yeah, it's really interesting to think that through because I think with the first book that was my that was sort of where I focused was like how 
wellness culture was diet culture in disguise. And certainly they share the same underpinnings about like beliefs about bodies and body size and food, right? So um, as I define diet culture in the first book, it's like, you know, a system of beliefs that worships thinness and equates it to health and moral virtue, promotes weight loss and body reshaping as a means of attaining higher status. And that can be health status, moral status, and social status, uh, demonizes certain foods and food groups while elevating others and promotes weight loss as a, um, uh, you know, or, and, and oppresses people who don't match the supposed picture of health. And so, you know, that is definitely those, those tenets are, um, foundational to wellness culture. And I talk a little bit about the history of that. I don't get into like such, uh, far history as I do in the first book. Cause I went back to like, you know, the 1800s in the first book, and there's certainly roots of that, you know, roots of wellness culture back that far as well, or even farther, really. Um, there's there's long been these sort of efforts to, you know, treat things with natural medicine and and the distinction between you know quote unquote natural and allopathic medicine, um, or or you know allopathic and homeopathic or naturopathic medicine was uh, came about in like the 1800s. But the, really, the sort of foundation of diet of wellness culture as we know it today is in the 1970s. And I think that's where diet culture became like part of the foundation, just, you know, built right in this anti-fat bias, you know, denigrating certain foods, treating them as bad. The author of kind of the foundational wellness text um, calls it, calls them porno foods, you know, and, and talks about how you shouldn't trust fat doctors because they're leading you astray and like all this terrible anti-fat stuff. Um, and anti-food as well. But then I think wellness culture, even though it also incorporates those values, it, it has a lot of its own that it builds on top of those. And that's where I think it's really interesting today to see like people who have read my work or, you know, like people in my audience or in my um, courses or clients of mine, you know, coming in and saying, well, I've, I've rejected diet culture, but you know, my naturopath told me I need to cut out all these foods or I've rejected diet culture, but I'm still worried about a leaky gut, you know? And like, like it's actually part of the same thing, right? Wellness culture is sort of the, the roots are in diet culture, but then there's also these other outcroppings where it's like denigrating conventional medicine and idolizing things that are, you know, alternative and supposedly holistic and especially non-Western, you know, things that are seen as ancient and um, Eastern and mystical are like lionized in wellness culture and, you know, to the point of creating rampant cultural appropriation and fetishization and also like taking things wildly out of context and not really... Um, you know, doing justice to these these ancient healing traditions that have their their own context, um, but sort of like picking and choosing bits of them to incorporate into a holistic, you know, like a, a naturopathic or um, alternative or functional or integrative sort of practice. Um, and then, you know, well, wellness culture also really stresses the importance of individual choice in general and the individual, you know, optimizing their own health and sort of being in charge of that. And that's, I think, Western culture in general, and especially American culture, I think with its like rampant individualism really, um, is at the root of that as well, but it's, it shows up very much in wellness culture. And then, you know, 
downplaying the social determinants of health that have a far greater impact on population level well-being than individual choices. You know, telling people they can optimize their health when they don't have any control over their economic situation is really not helpful for anyone's well-being. Um, and then, you know, I think this system of wellness culture also gives anecdotes and social media testimonials more weight than sound scientific evidence in a lot of cases, and in some some cases really denigrates science and um, conventional medicine and makes people feel like they can only trust anecdotes, they can only trust, you know, the, the alternative system. And that really enables the spread of misinformation and disinformation because, you know, people are made to not trust science, which also for sure has its problems. And, you know, there's issues with how science is conducted and, and, you know, lack of research on certain groups and stuff like that. But I think on the whole, science is still kind of the best, the best thing we have for figuring out whether certain treatments are genuinely effective in and of themselves or whether they're the result of placebo or nocebo effects and like beliefs about the treatment, um, cause those can have real effects. So yeah, I think um, wellness culture has all these additional problems and sort of additional layers to it that people can sort of feel like they're out of diet culture, they've healed from that, but they just want to eat, um, you know, in a quote unquote healthy way, or they want to, you know, pursue um, alternative or integrative or complementary or holistic forms of medicine. And like, that's very understandable because in the healthcare system, again, so many of us are not seen as whole people or treated with the respect we deserve or have our symptoms taken seriously. And so I think it's only natural to be attracted to something that purports to give you what you need and deserve, you know, to give you that, um, respect and care and empathy. And there really is, I think, respect and care and empathy to be found in those systems too. There's, you know, providers give people lots of time and lots of listening and lots of support. Um, and if they're offering treatments, which they often are, that are not evidence-based or effective and that sometimes can be incredibly harmful to people's relationships with food and to other, you know, other physical systems as well, um, then, you know, I think the net, it's, it's a net negative actually. And so we need to be talking about that. And I think not enough people really are. I'm seeing, you know, a lot of people in this sort of eating disorder recovery space or um, anti-diet spaces being open to or sympathetic to or seeking out those kinds of alternative and integrative practices without exploring the connections with diet culture and the potential harms and problems with um, those systems. We need to be a bit more wary of the the red flags and, and the kind of signals of like, oh, this could be leading us down a slippery slope. And I think, you know, as you're saying, these things feel, it feels like a really I think we lean on wellness a lot because it feels like a very natural way to feel like we are in control of our own health and well-being and that we have a sense of autonomy there and a sense of like, I can do something about how I feel. And I think, you know, a lot of the work we do here is talk about the benefits of exercise. You know, the, the podcast that's out the week we're recording is all about the benefits of exercise on your mental health and well-being. But I think it's really important that we state, you know, in that episode and whenever we're having this conversation that, okay, there are benefits and it's very well documented, very well documented. However, it cannot be a cure-all and it cannot be this panacea for all 
issues in your life. And I think that's so much of what is appealing about wellness is that there's a lot of hope there. There's a lot of, you know, I'm, and I'm sure in, you you know, for you personally, when you're struggling with various chronic health conditions, it feels like there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of, you know, supposed answers to very complex situations that often can't be solved with perhaps a very one-dimensional um, approach. And so we kind of look to these holistic kind of ways of dealing with things. Um, but it, it can be it can be slip, a slippery slope. Um, and I'm for sure feel like there needs to be a big conversation about the privilege that is involved in even looking at those options in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. I really love the, the phrase, and I'm sure you've heard it before, like the worried well. Mm-hmm. And this idea that to kind of pursue wellness, to think, you know, to see several, you know, different practitioners and alternative sort of medicines or to, um, you know, to buy all the products on Goop and to, you know, drink all the different collagen drinks and green drinks and whatever else you can have. Um, it costs money, doesn't it? This mm-hmm. is all, this is a very expensive lifestyle approach to your health and well-being and there is a big kind of privilege conversation there a lot of people who are probably doing pretty well because they already probably have a certain level of financial security and how much of this is us trying to throw money at a problem that already we've got a leg up on a lot of the general population yeah, there's so much there. I think it, it's it's so interesting and complicated and layered because, mm. you know, there's definitely, I think, this sense that, um, you know, to always be optimizing, right? That's one aspect mm-hmm. of wellness is like you're supposed to always be striving for better and better health and sort of like this optimal state of wellness that no one can ever really achieve. So it always kind of recedes in the distance, you know? And so people with the most privilege can just throw the most money at it. But I think even the idea, you know, like Goop is so, you know, so many of the products and um, practices are unattainable to like, average or middle class folks and yet or in certainly you know working class and and lower socioeconomic status folks but um i think it's the way that it's marketed is sort of supposed to be for everyone it's it's like you know trying to democratize these things that are actually really inaccessible and you know especially with social media and the way that wellness culture and it's all all of its various manifestations are um, have become so popular and so, you know, reaching so many different age groups and demographics. Like, I think it, it there's a, a flavor of wellness culture marketed to everyone, basically. Yes. Um, and so that's, that's really tricky because, you know, people will spend all this money that they don't have in some cases, you know, thinking that they're doing something good for their health and, and try, and, you know, in a lot of cases, I think, especially for women and um, other marginalized populations, there are like symptoms that we might experience that have to do with stress, you know, chronic stress caused by the trauma of living in, a marginalized body or living in this world as, you know, a woman in a patriarchal society or whatever it might be that, you know, we don't have good answers for, right? The the chronic stress connection with physical symptoms and ailments is very real. Um, and then autoimmune conditions primarily affect women, you know, certain other um, 
conditions like endometriosis or other like poorly understood conditions primarily affect women and you know we don't have a lot of good answers and so i think there are people out there kind of at all socioeconomic levels that struggle with these things and are being unserved or underserved and feeling dismissed by the conventional healthcare system or don't even have access to medical care sort of at the most um extreme cases you know and so these wellness um, spaces that sort of seem welcoming and seem like they're going to help you, um, you know, it might be, it's understandable why people might want to spend all this money on, on pursuing that to feel better, to get to a state of, of, you know, feeling like you're okay. And, you know, it's, it, and then there's this optimization mandate that happens, right? So it's like, well, I feel like I'm okay, but now I want to feel like I'm high functioning and I'm like, you know, I'm optimized or I'm, I'm doing better than okay. I shouldn't have to just be getting by. I should be feeling, you know, amazing and look at all these people on social media feeling amazing and look at, you know, what my, uh, you know, functional medicine doctor or whatever tells me I can be feeling like, you know, it's, it's, I think easy to get into this like arms race almost with it where you're spending more and more and more to try to feel better. And this, this idea of what better is or good enough is, or optimized is, is always kind of receding in the distance. Yeah. The goalposts are always moving, aren't they? And mm-hmm. the idea of like, so what, so what is wellness in the sense of what is the goal to achieve? Where where do we draw the line? Where do we go? Okay, I made it. I did it. Because Mm -hmm. I think in the world of wellness, you can never make it. There's always a target, another thing to go for. And, you know, when we think of, especially when we think of like privileged conversations around this and we think of certain things, obviously we think of Gwyneth Paltrow, we think of Goop, we think of, you know, I'm sure the last 20 years of your own experience with this from the early 2000s to now has really been in parallel with the rise of Gwyneth Paltrow with Goop, um, which I do feel that people are slightly starting to kind of see through on a more kind of general level. I think her most recent comments about barely eating throughout the day and bone broth and all the rest of it, Mm -hmm. I think work and the reaction to that by more kind of Gen Z, millennials on TikTok and things like that kind of shows that like we're seeing through the BS a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet there's still some of it where I think we're seeing the same patterns repeat over and over and over. And you see that on TikTok algorithms of, you know, I know myself going on there being exposed to things, which I'm in my nice little bubble on Instagram. And I go on there and I'm like, oh, wow, we're still doing that. We're still talking about Mm -hmm. that. We're still, you know, doing all those things. But there's, you've got people like Gwyneth Paltrow. And then I think from a male perspective, you've got a lot of these sort of Silicon Valley biohacking guys who like sleep four hours a night and do these kind of wellness things because god forbid they call it a diet Mm -hmm. or whatever else um you know intermittent fasting i think has really come from them and so much of that i think from a male perspective is wellness but disguised as productivity as Mm -hmm. optimization of performance and, and all these things um and i think it's so coded in wellness i think it's so coded in capitalism and i'm just yeah, curious on your take on this, having done so much research yourself. Yeah, for sure. I think that that biohacking sort of tech bro dieting, as I call it, mm. like space, um, is is where 
so many men and masculine folks get tripped up with this because, you know, it's, it, it again, it's packaged not as a diet, but a lifestyle change and it's for productivity and it's, you know, it has all these supposed benefits that are beyond just losing weight. Although losing weight is always a part of it too, or, you know, being thin is always a part of it. And with the male sort of tech bro dieting version, it's like leanness and sometimes framed as like ancestral leanness, you know, get back to your, your ancestral leanness. That is the, the birthright of, um, all humans or whatever. And it's just so it's just, it's just dieting, right? It's just body shrinking. But then there's also this element of optimization of like tracking every single thing in your body, in a way that, you know, I think now that with the popularity of intuitive eating, I've started to see people trying to connect that with intuitive eating and say, well, track your body so that you know your body, so that you get in touch with your body, right? Like track every, track your blood glucose, track your period, track your temperature, track this, track that. And it's actually like profoundly disconnecting for many people, I think. It, it you know, creates this sort of intellectual wall between us and our body and all of these new things to obsess about, you know, these new numbers, right? If it's, mm-hmm. we're, you know, getting away from the scale, but then we're replacing Sweet. it with like 10 other numbers yeah. that are supposed to measure our worth and, or, you know, our, our body's health in some ways that really there's not a lot of good evidence behind, you know, especially like I think about the trend of continuous glucose monitoring for people who don't have diabetes or any blood sugar abnormalities, you know, people with totally fine blood sugars being told that they should track their glucose for like optimization and, you know, weight loss and all these other things. And it's just, it's just horrible because it gives people this new thing to obsess about. There's no good data to show like what, continuous blood sugars should look like in someone without diabetes. You know, we really don't have that evidence. So if people have these spikes and drops throughout the day, like that's actually pretty normal to have ups and downs when you're hungry or when you're full or, you know, that in part is what drives hunger and fullness too. When your blood sugar gets low enough signals to your body that it's time to eat, you know, and then when you're satiated and and full, your blood sugar is probably at a high point you know, none of that is like problematic in and of itself. But I think this push for tracking all of those things, right, the push to like, see what your glucose is doing throughout the day, problematizes it makes it makes it out to, you know, pathologizes these normal ups and downs that we might have. Um, And that's just one aspect of this sort of tech bro dieting that I've seen become really popular in recent years, you know, definitely intermittent fasting is a huge one too. And it's interesting, some of the biggest proponents of intermittent fasting there was a, a couple studies that came out showing there's no difference in weight loss between people who are intermittent fasting and people who are just on a regular old restrictive diet and that both groups end up regaining weight and having their you know biomarkers revert to baseline um, within a year or two and um, you know that there's no real long-term benefit to these diets and yet some of the people who've been the biggest proponents of it have like really stuck to their guns about fasting and still claim that it's a good thing. And that, you know, even if there's no benefits in these studies, it's, you know, the benefits are different or subtler or only show up longer term or whatever it might be, you know? Um, so really like digging in their heels, but I thought it was interesting that one of the authors of, of one of these big studies on intermittent fasting that showed no benefit said that he had been doing it. The researcher had been doing it himself for seven years and he wanted to study, you know, whether this thing he was doing was actually beneficial. And when he saw the results, he stopped because he realized like there was no benefit. 
you know, so it's, it, there are people who will reconsider their uh, approach in light of that kind of evidence. But I think that's unfortunately less, you know, less of the population than the people who just want to believe it's good and want to sort of dig in their heels. And I think about my own sort of, um, intermittent fasting before that was a thing, you know, and that was just coming from this belief from like a friend who had offhandedly said they skipped breakfast. And, you know, I was like, well, she's thin and this, that's why I need to do that, you know? And it was just so arbitrary. And so, um, so unhelpful to me, you know, just, it was a disordered eating rule. It was, it became another rule to kind of hem myself in and harm my relationship with food. And, you know, it's not something I would recommend to anyone, but it's, it was, I became so wedded to that, you know? And I think that, I think in some cases, the people who are really wedded to intermittent fasting kind of has that same function for them. It's an eating disorder rule that like organizes their life and they, really fight giving it up because to give that up means to give up a measure of control means to give up mm-hmm. this thing that they think is bringing them thinness that, you know, thinness of course is also bringing them benefits in this weight stigmatizing society. And so to give that up is to like fear losing, losing those privileges, you know? So I think there's a lot, a lot to it. Like people who are prop- like proponents of these diets are people too. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I think we know this about engaging with eating disorders and disordered eating. And I know in my own experience of how much of a huge part of an identity it was for me. And I think there's so much of this that is identity, community, meaning, purpose for people. You know, I'm sure like Gwyneth Paltrow, for example, I'm sure she, you know, this is a huge part of her world, of her identity, of her way of living, that it's almost on a religion level. You know, I think there is a lot, I mean, something I'm personally very interested in is kind of the way that we have shifted, especially like millennials and Gen Z to like being obsessed with our star signs and astrology and spiritual, I mean, engaging with spirituality in that context. And then I think there's huge overlap with wellness within that and how those two worlds very much are aligned and overlap um and that when you are you know really engaging in that and 
you know, you're in a spiritual place, you're following people. And I think there's a kind of type of spirituality. And I I saw this play out from 2020 onwards too with people I follow online, with people I know, where there's an interest in this place. You're looking to certain voices in that place. They're also on this, you know, it's a slight alternative way of thinking. The wellness part gets brought in. And then all of a sudden you're in conspiracy theories and then then we're off. Then we are off to the far right and there there we are. And it all seems fairly innocuous from just being like, I'm going to try and be gluten-free to all of a sudden I'm full-blown engaged in conspiracy theories. Like, how do we get there? But it, it, but it also seems quite clear how we get there. If we think about, I know certainly in the UK, in the US, I know there's kind of like less and less engagement, especially in the UK, less and less engagement in sort of formal religion in the way that we know it. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking to other things to belong, to engage in. Like how much do you think identity and community plays a role in people kind of getting wrapped up in wellness culture? Yeah, I think it definitely is a big part of it for people. I think- you know, like you said, there's there's sort of declining levels of community engagement in other ways. And that's going back to like the 1990s, you know, the book Bowling Alone and and sort of the decline of community in the American culture, at least at that point. Um, you know, this has been kind of a longstanding issue that like civic engagement and uh, community engagement has been on the decline and in, in sort of the general sense, you know, certainly certain communities are very um, connected. And I think it's not like across the board, but I think as, you know, at the population level, we're seeing these declines. And so I think that is a, a big part of it, that people find identity, people find community by connecting over wellness culture topics. Um, and then there's there are the spiritual offerings within wellness as well, the, you know, yoga, meditation, um, energy healing, astrology. Yeah, there's there's definitely this yearning for community and yearning for belonging that I think is a big part of it. And I think, um, you know, in terms of the spirituality stuff, like it, it is a fertile ground for, <laughs> for this mm. kind of stuff to take rise, you know, and I um, talked to one of the co-hosts of the Conspirituality podcast for the book, Julian Walker, um, who, you know, made this point that like, we see all of this conspiracy-like thinking and wellness culture going back decades, you know, and I've seen this myself and participated in it myself of saying like, well, yeah, there's no research funding for alternative medicine. So like the the stuff works, but we just don't know it because research funding isn't there because big pharma doesn't want you to take away from their profits, right? It's sort of blaming big pharma or blaming big food. You know, we're so unhealthy because of big food. Mm -hmm. We're so unhealthy because of big agriculture. We're so unhealthy because, you know, our because big pharma like funds the healthcare system and wants to just have everybody take a pill for everything rather than like getting to the root of the problem. And, you know, there are definitely issues with the pharmaceutical industry for sure. There are definitely issues with the food industry. Like I'm not here to deny that. And I think, you know, we see the issues very starkly now with like Ozempic and Um, you know, the weight loss drugs that are on the market, the pharmaceutical industry influence, you know, here in the US and in the UK, I just, there was just some exposés about about it. Yeah. Yeah. In the, the observer about how, you know, Novo Nordisk, the maker of semaglutide, is is influencing the UK to adopt it and to say it's, uh, to influence the NHS. Things. Yeah. They're funding people within the NHS. And yeah, there's very blurry lines over here as well, Mm -hmm. for sure. 
Yeah. So, you know, I think there is, there's reason to be skeptical of these industries. And I think the skepticism, the sort of healthy skepticism can tip over into conspiracism quite easily, especially when the machinery of social media gets involved. And that's something that I focused on a lot of the book is like how social media can radicalize us and take us from innocuous searches about healthy eating or people who come in wanting weight loss, right? Kind of wanting this diet culture thing, but then get funneled into more and more and more extreme diets and pro eating disorder content and, you know, end up at this like very extreme place. And, you know, people who come in for wellness and want, you know, like I talked to someone for the book who was a new mom and wanted cloth diapering or um, making her own baby food, like information about that. And, you know, this was a while ago. So Facebook was not cracking down at all on anti-vax groups then. They still are not doing a great job now, honestly. But, you know, back then they were like actively recommending anti-vax groups to people who had those sort of wellness crunchy interests. And still we see that happening. You know, I think even with social media companies trying to crack down on that, there's still ways that people are getting funneled into anti-vax groups, into conspiracy groups, you know, the anti-vax movement and or industry, depending on how you look at it, um, is, you know, just kind of one step ahead of the moderation and always trying to change their language to, you know, get like escape the AI moderation in those social media spaces. And, you know, we see that happening a lot with these um conspiracy theories and, you know, beliefs about wellness that they're just shape-shifting and sort of avoiding moderation. And they're still um, there to sort of take in people who are questioning, people who are searching for wellness, people who are searching, you know, parents who are searching for um, answers for how to keep their kids healthy and stuff like that. It's like this, you know, fertile ground for them to be attracted to these sort of conspiracist ways of thinking about, um, vaccines or COVID or whatever, whatever else the case may be. And I think, you know, from there, it's like the research shows that if you believe in one conspiracy theory, you're more likely to believe in others. And so people who already believe in conspiracies about big pharma, big food, you know, vaccines or whatever, um, are pretty easily sucked in, I think, to conspiracies like QAnon and the other sort of more extreme stuff. There's certainly that dimension. I also think there is that aspirational side of things as well that peak wellness that that kind of thing we're striving for often comes with you know obviously a certain identity a certain community it comes with a certain probably um economic status it comes with a looking a certain way and I think all of this is kind of wrapped up in this idea that like I'm working on my wellness you know we, we say before it's not a diet it's a lifestyle and yet I feel that to be well I have to have clear skin I have to have you know I I'm waking up at 5 a.m every day I'm intermittent fasting I'm doing all these I'm drinking this I'm drinking that you know potion it's bone broth for lunch it's you know yoga and meditation and sound bath whatever and you know I think there's it's just there's so many facets to it where it pulls, I think, so many different people kind of in. It draws people in. Um, and I think a lot of it comes down to the kind of control and like a psychological level. I know that when we think about food and disordered eating, we think about 
and I'm speaking from my own experience here, a level of control, you know, for me to really focus on the quality and ingredients of my food and to think about what I'm going to be eating and calculating my macros and doing all of that, that gave me a, a, a lot of control and certainty in a very stressful time when other things felt really out of my control. And I think it's the same with wellness, right? Like the more we can do all these things, we feel like we have some control over it. And, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this on a, you know, in terms of what you've kind of found through your research, but also maybe on a personal level or even just anecdotal level with your clients that how, for me, realizing that a lot of this stuff wasn't in my control was very liberating and continues to be very liberating to go like, oh, like, we can't necessarily take a, the a calorie, like a value of a calorie at like face value. And actually like, that's a lot more murky than we were led to believe. As an example, learning that was like, oh, and I stressed over perfectly hitting these calories for years. And, you know, that I kind of go like, and what was that all for? Because that couldn't have been accurate. So now I can live my life just being like, you know what? that's not an absolute. And so that gives me a lot of freedom. I know that can also freak people out. And I wonder what your kind of take on this is when you kind of say to people like, you know, you don't have as much control over your health and well-being as you, this industry has led you to believe. You know, I see, you know, I see that, like I said, for me, feeling liberating, for others feeling terrifying. And I just wonder how you navigated that and, you know, how, you know, like I say, the the research and and maybe anecdotal evidence kind of shows how that plays out as well. Yeah, totally. I think it can be like both liberating and terrifying for the same person at different times even. I know for myself, like, you know, when I first started hearing people say, well, you know, maybe this is just, this is just life and managing a chronic illness, you know, is tough and there are going to be ups and downs, there are going to be moments when you don't feel as great as you want to feel or that you have to like take breaks or not do as much as other people. Maybe, you know, it was so hard to accept that. And it was, I was so frustrated hearing that. And I wanted to like scream at the people who said that. And, and, you know, sometimes doctors would say things to that effect and it would make me feel like, well, they don't get it. This doctor doesn't understand. I'm going to try a different doctor. I'm going to go to, you know, a natural, I'm going to go down this like quote unquote natural route or whatever. Um, and so, you know, at, at that time in my life when I was really like, I don't know, just tightly wound around this idea that I had control and, and where that control was so meaningful. Cause I think so much else in my life felt out of control and, and, you know, like it wasn't going the way I wanted it to. And so I at least could control like how I managed my food and exercise and relationship with these chronic illnesses or whatever, like it, it did give me something. And then later on, when I think the, I started to realize that the negatives were outweighing the positives that like whatever the disordered eating was giving me was, was outweighed by what it was taking from me. Then I think I started to open up to the liberatory aspects of it. And now, you know, 10 years into recovery or whatever, I feel like, yeah, it is very liberating to just think, we don't know. We, like, we don't have all the answers. Bodies are weird. They do weird things. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm not always going to feel amazing the way that I'm 
told I need to be able to. And, you know, I'm starting to be able to see that some, that the people who are telling me, you shouldn't have to settle for feeling bad. You should feel amazing are trying to sell me something, you know, that that's, that that's a sales pitch, right? The, like the aspirational idea of always feeling great and never having a tough day or never having symptoms, that's a sales pitch. And that's not something, you know, in my experience, I think I also kind of had to go through it to some extent, testing that hypothesis of like, okay, is this, is this true? Or, you know, can I have, can I really have it all the way that they say? And, um, you know, testing that hypothesis and finding like, yeah, no, whatever I do, however much food I cut out or whatever supplements I take or other practices I engage in, like, I'm still not going to feel amazing all the time. And it's sort of an ongoing ebb and flow. And that's really tricky when, you know, because I, t- I talked to some people for the book who had really serious conditions, like one person who had a tumor that was entangled in critical blood vessels in her pancreas and she could have died, you know, that she was actually ironically dismissed by a functional medicine provider who had initially made her feel really heard and understood. And, you know, she got the empathy from her that she wasn't getting from the conventional healthcare system. And so finally felt like, okay, here's someone's going to get to the root of my digestive troubles and my stomach pain and all this stuff. And, you know, eventually when the pain got so bad, the the woman went back to the functional medicine provider and said, you know, it's a different kind of pain. It's it's really bad now. Like, what what do you have for me? The functional medicine provider was like, well, that's just how it is when you have chronic inflammation. You know, your whole system is inflamed, right? So it was this explanation that was that lived in sort of a, an alternative and functional space of like chronic inflammation. But it was the same kind of thing that that sometimes we hear from the conventional system of like, well, you know, you're just stressed or this is kind of how it is to age. Like this might just be a, a process of aging or whatever it is, you know, like we get these explanations. And then you know, in some cases, it does turn out to be something physical and real and diagnosable. And, you know, in this woman's case, she went to a gastroenterologist, she like circled back to the conventional healthcare system, went to a gastroenterologist who actually palpated her abdomen, located the source of the problem was like, I think it might be your gallbladder, did imaging studies like the next day and found this tumor. And so the cases like that make you want to keep seeking, right? But then you have to sort of balance it with, okay, but what of, what of this is just, is just life, you know, like, is it, cause if I think in, in her case, this woman, Jennifer, it's like, it was a different kind of pain and it was sharp and persistent, you know? And I think that's the kind of thing we need to really take seriously. But if it's, you know, I've just been feeling kind of tired. I just, I'm not, I'm not feeling my best. I don't feel, you know, dewy and glowy in the way that all these people on TikTok, like make me think I should feel. That is one of those things that I think we can, grapple with and sort of think through like, what, what are my expectations here? And can I adjust them to match the sort of messiness of life and the fact that like, we aren't all always going to feel good all the time, but it's, it's such a messy process, right? It's an ongoing dance. Cause I think we do need to take our symptoms seriously. And there is a history of dismissing women's pain and, you know, black women's pain, especially and stuff that like, we need to take seriously and and seek out answers and get the help and care we deserve. And, you know, we're not all going to feel great all the time. And life is hard and we're overworked in this capitalist hellscape that we live in, you know, and like trying to balance different responsibilities or maybe having a family and like trying to still work, you know, like all of it is really hard. And um, I don't think we can expect to like 
feel consistently amazing. And if we do those experiments on ourselves and see, okay, well, I did cut out all these foods. Am I feeling better? Am I actually feeling the the great, you know, magical vibes that I was promised? Maybe a little bit at first, but maybe not now, or I don't really know, or it's hard to say, or now I have all these other symptoms that are popping up. You know, try to remember that and be, I think, be a little bit scientific with yourself. Because I, I had this experience where I would start a new intervention thinking it was going to be the best thing and, you know, maybe have some placebo effect at first of feeling like it worked, but then be like, oh, I don't know if it's actually working. Now I'm having all these other things, not remembering that what I was doing before that, you know, I wasn't doing this intervention. What if I went back to that, right? What if I just cut out this, you know, like in the case of going gluten-free, what if I just stopped being gluten-free? What if I just went back to gluten, right? And saw how that was in comparison and whether these other new symptoms that have popped up go away, you know? Um, Giving yourself that space because I think sometimes when we get really invested and especially when social media kind of radicalizes us to think, well, I I can't have gluten because gluten is the devil because it has all these negatives to it. And so now the thing I need to cut is also dairy and I also need to cut nightshades and I also need to cut this and cut that, you know, because we can't, like, we feel like we can't go back. But I think just remembering that you can always go back, like you can let go of these interventions and, you know, see how you feel. And I think if you recognize that you feel about the same or better when you stop doing the wellness intervention, then that's something to really take into consideration. And, you know, we speak so much about how diet culture disconnects us from our bodies. And I think so does wellness culture, doesn't it? And that, you know, knowing the kind of difference between, oh, I need to get this pain seen to, or like this symptom doesn't feel right. I know my body, I know myself, I don't feel right. Versus knowing what your kind of general aches and pains are in your body. I think you know, there are a lot of people who may struggle with that because they're so disconnected from their bodies. They have kind of constantly outsourced how they feel to to external sources of kind of knowledge of information that they don't know themselves. And, you know, that's, I think, a huge part of the work of like intuitive eating. I know when I work with people with intuitive movement, a huge part of it is like, how do you feel? When does your body know it's too much, not enough? Where are those boundaries for your body? And a lot of people do not know those answers because they have years of mistrust. And, you know, so kind of getting that discernment and strengthening that kind of discernment muscle almost um, is a huge part of this process, isn't it? In knowing your body and knowing what's right. And, you know, what diet culture seeks to do, and I think what wellness culture seeks to do is make you not trust yourself. Because if you don't trust yourself, then you're more willing to spend money on a product that kind of tells you there's a solution there or a program or whatever it is. You know, there's, you have an issue, someone's selling the solution. You know, we have to be to be mindful of that. What what are the key red flags that we need to kind of be aware of when it comes to the world mm, of wellness? Good question. I think anything that's sort of um, purporting to deal with a wide range of symptoms, right? Like I think about the rhetoric around celery juice where it's like, do you have headaches? Mm. Do you have autoimmune conditions? Do you have dry skin? Do you have, you know, hormonal imbalances, this, that, the other, like it's this huge list of things. Um, take this one thing and it'll help, you know, it'll cure all these ailments, right? Like beware the cure-all. I think that's a huge red flag. And the cure-all can, can, 
exist in sort of subtler forms too. Like I think, you know, blaming um, supposed chronic candida infections for um, all these diverse symptoms, right? You know, blaming adrenal fatigue for all these diverse symptoms. You know, these are conditions, by the way, that are not supported by good evidence, but that are rampant in certain corners of the wellness world and in alternative spaces. Um, You know, I call them dubious diagnoses. They're really not, there's not good evidence behind them. They have a grain of truth in them. There's like always kind of a grain of truth to a lot of these wellness culture claims, but then it's sort of, I've been using this metaphor of like, it's a grain, like a popcorn grain that's then like popped out into this giant popcorn of sort of fluff of like false information, you know? Um, and so being aware that the, the sort of cure-all idea can show up in different spaces and have this veneer of respectability to it sometimes. Like there can be, you know, people with an MD after their name who practice in sort of an integrative and functional mm. way who are telling you that you need to just cut out all these foods and it'll address your inflammation that'll cure all of your symptoms and conditions. You know, be aware of that, that that's, that's this coming from the same kind of place as, you know, a medical medium or somebody telling you that celery juice will cure all these conditions where I think it's a little bit easier for some folks to see that that's kind of snake oil, but it's harder to, harder to sort of grapple with you know, the recommendations from like a doctor or uh, another healthcare provider in these like functional and integrative spaces. Can we just maybe name check just a few people who we might need to be more aware mm-hmm. of? I'm thinking of people like Dr. Mark yes. Hyman. Yes. Sure. Dr. Oz, Dr. Hyman, um, Amy Myers, MD is another like big functional medicine person. Um Mark, uh, Peter Atia, who's kind of like a biohacking guy, psychiatry space. There's like holistic psychiatrists, people who sort of bill themselves as, um, being able to get you off your medication, not, you know, you can make these lifestyle changes and get off all medications. Like Kelly Brogan is one of the sort of, um, most extreme, but there's others too. Um, Drew Ramsey, uh, is one who's, much less extreme and less conspiratorial, but, you know, it's very much still about treating psychological conditions with food and lifestyle. Um, on the sort of conspiracist tip, along with Kelly Brogan, there's uh, Christiane Northrup, who is a medical doctor who I think gave up her license in her home state. It doesn't really practice anymore, but is now like full, full QAnon conspiracy, you know, thinking, but has been, it's interesting to kind of trace her development because you can sort of see the, the slide from wellness into QAnon through her story. You know, she was like a conventional women's health MD and sort of got interested in some more alternative practices and started integrating them and then went more and more and more into the alternative space and then, you know, slid into this conspiracist kind of territory. Anti-vax attitudes were present kind of early on in her transition to alternative medicine. Um, yeah, so those are a few who I talk about in the book who come up, but, you know, there's there's new folks every day. I mean, I haven't really delved into mm-hmm. this on TikTok, the way, you know, the emerging stars that are happening there now, because, uh, you know, when you write a book, it's like two years in the making. So I'm sure there's people now who, who are emerging that I didn't even, didn't even exist or, you know, didn't even um, have a presence or whatever when I was writing the book. Um, so I think 
just knowing general principles is also helpful for being wary, not necessarily specific people per se, but just knowing like what to look out for. Um, other things to look out for, I think, are, you know, taking like small studies or, or emerging areas of science and turning them into these entire practices or, you know, building a whole business around them. Like I think about the glucose goddess who is, you know, a researcher who's uh, like Peter Atia encourages people to wear continuous glucose monitors, even if they don't have diabetes and to like track their glucose obsessively. And I've definitely seen, um, I've seen some of this yeah. as well. And yeah. I've seen people get so obsessed and sort of triggered by that, you know, because being that hyper aware and fixated on these numbers that don't necessarily mean anything, but you're being told they mean so much um, is can really lead people into or or trigger people back into disordered eating um, if they're susceptible. So I think just watching out for those kinds of things and and knowing that like where it's based on quote unquote emerging science and just doing learning a little bit about research methods, which I talk about in the book for helping people start to be warier. Um, you don't have to necessarily read full text scientific studies, nor does everybody have the desire or time or money to do that because they're often be behind these really steep paywalls too. Um, but just learning how to read an abstract for understanding is this a correlation or could this study potentially show causation? Is this study in animals or cells? In which case it's not at all relevant to humans. It's relevant to other scientists who might want to build research on that, you know, to use that as, as a jumping off point for further research, but it's not relevant clinically to humans at all. If you look at a study and it's, you know, 10 people or 20 people, or even in some cases, 100 people, but it's one study, you know, and it's, uh, even if it's a randomized controlled trial, I think there still needs to be more replication of those studies to show any benefit. And especially if it's in like 50 people or less, I would look at that really skeptically. Um, and in some cases, people are you know, these wellness influencers will cite a supposed study or, or you know, have links to click through to the studies that they're supposedly citing. And then the study itself doesn't say anything about what the provider is actually claiming, right? And it's like, to be charitable, maybe they had a research assistant who was, you know, putting in the studies and just messed up. Or to be, you know, a little more skeptical and critical, maybe they're putting in random studies or things that are like tangentially related, but don't actually show what they purport to show, because they know nobody's really checking up on it. Or because they're, you know, to be a little more charitable again, it's like they're making a leap and not necessarily well-informed, mm -hmm. you know, versus like actual um, well-conducted research that could be the basis of recommendations clinically um, needs to be more robust. So those are just a few things. Um, and I talk about more, you know, tips in the book for kind of sifting through information online. Oh, Christy, this has been fab. And like I said, you've given us so much um, in this time and yet there's so much more in the book. There's so much more in the book. Um, before we go, I have to ask everyone that to ask what has been your most recent train happy mm, moment. I love that. Well, so I have a one-year-old, so I haven't really been doing uh, as much like specific physical activity, you know, like structured physical activity. I make time for yoga occasionally when I can, um, but most of my time kind of 
physically being physically active, I just spend with her. And the other day we went to the zoo and I, and she was like in the stroller, but just wanted to look around and, you know, point at things and stuff. So I carried her up a big hill and it just like felt really good to be doing something like that with my body and like allowing her to see the sights and like getting up the hill, we could kind of see a a different vantage point of the rest of the zoo. And it was really nice. And um, yeah, it just felt like I felt powerful and good and strong to be able to do that. And it also wasn't like, you know, there was nothing about it that felt like diety or like tracky or, you know, cause I think even in like, if I, do, I don't really do group fitness classes anymore other than yoga, but even sometimes with the, you know, online yoga instructors, there'll be a diety comment here or there that kind of makes me be like, Oh God, I don't want to have to think about this. Um, so it's nice to like be sort of just out in the world doing things and, not have to think about the diety comments. Um, yeah. So that was, that felt like I was training happy. I love that. I love that. And I think when I say to people about these benefits of movement, it is so you have moments like that and you get to enjoy them with your daughter and you get to, you know, um, see more and experience more and have these moments together. And I think that's lovely. Um, So Christy, where can people find you, find your, both your books and both your podcasts? Yes, two books and two podcasts now. So um, people can find me and (laughs) all of that stuff on my website, christyharrison.com. The new podcast is called Rethinking Wellness and it's, you know, expanding on conversations from the book. And you can find that wherever you're listening to this. And um, for the, for the new book, The Wellness Trap, you can go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to find all the places to order it or lots of places to order it, um, you know, throughout the country in the world. But if you just go into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it, you can, that's a good way to do it too. Um, and it's out in the UK, I think the same, the same time as it's out in the US. So local bookstores there should have it. Perfect. This has been so wonderful. I've so enjoyed talking to you and I feel like, like I said, there's so much more to talk about on this topic. Um, so maybe we'll have to have you back for a part two. Oh, I would love that. That's awesome. But that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please do let us know on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. And we do want to hear from you. We want your questions. We want to hear your train happy moments. And we'd love to feature you as Train Happy Trooper of the Week. So remember, you can get in touch with us via our WhatsApp. It is 07599927537. And whatever podcast platform you're choosing to listen to us on, please rate and review. It really helps the show and it really helps spread the train a happy message. And that is it for this week. I'll be back with a brand new episode for you next Monday. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.